You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. Looking at the book of Proverbs this semester in RUF and just taking different themes and looking at what the book has to say about it. And as a whole, the book of Proverbs is dealing with the subject of wisdom. And we said that wisdom is skill. It literally means skill, but it's skill at life. Really, um, wisdom is, is learning and knowing how to, uh, in a masterful way, navigate all the gray areas of life. And I think one gray area that has a lot of questions for us is just is our emotional life. What do we do with our emotions? Do we just let ourselves feel every feeling that we feel? Or do we ever suppress what we feel? And what do we do? When do we do that? All of that's very vague and confusing for us. And so I wanted to take just one emotion that the book of Proverbs talks a lot about, which is anger, and explore what it would look like to walk through the grayness of anger uh, with skill. So I want to look at one verse um, tonight with you. It is Proverbs 14, 29. It says this. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. We'll look at some others, but that will just kind of be our foundational text. Let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you again for this time together. Thank you for this community that we can come alongside of each other when we're grieving, when we're hurting, when we're angry, when we're experiencing the full range of emotions that you give us each other to walk through and experience those things together. I pray that you would um, be with us now, teach us, open up our eyes, unclog our ears, soften our hearts, that we would see and behold the beauty and the truthfulness of who you really are. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Uh, There was an article that came out in the New York Times back in 2003, and here's how the article begins. It begins like this. His obsession began innocently enough with the puppies and broken-winged birds every little boy begs to bring home. But over the years, Antoine Yates' taste in animals grew ever more exotic, neighbors said. And his collection came to include reptiles, a monkey or two, and according to one neighbor, even a hyena. So here's this guy who's living with his mother, Martha, in the the heart of New York City in a public housing project. And his mother decides to move out after he brings home a cat by the name of Ming. She had tolerated his obsession with exotic animals for a while, but when Ming came in, she said that was enough, and she moved to Philly. And the reason why is Ming was not a typical house cat. It was a 400-pound Bengal tiger that he brought in and put in a cage in the middle of their apartment. So what he would do over the next couple of months is he would open up the cage just enough so that a paw couldn't get out, and he would throw in... Uh, chicken, raw chicken. He'd have to pick up and deal with tiger manure. And um, uh, after a while, the neighbors began to be a little suspicious. They heard these 
noises and called the police. And so the police arrive to his apartment. This is all true. You can read this article online. And they get to his apartment, and they're shocked for a number of different reasons. One is that his arm is in a sling because he had been recently injured by the tiger. Uh, The other reason they were shocked is because, oh, there's a tiger in his apartment. (laughs) And they also found a five-foot alligator in his apartment. So what they did, and I thought this was amazing, they brought in a sharpshooter that rappelled off the side of the apartment complex and shot the uh, tiger with some tranquilizer darts and then were able to kind of pull it out. And so he uh, had to go to court a couple days later, and he shows up to court limping and his arm is in a sling, both injuries from the tiger. And uh, here's what he says. This is his official court statement. He says this, I never feared him at all. He was my best friend. He was my only friend, really. You hear that and think, that is really sad for this poor guy with his tiger. But yet, from another angle, that's really dumb. Like, who would be so foolish that you would feed something that could kill you? And the reason I begin that way is because I think the answer to that question is, uh, well, we could. All of us could. We're all feeding something that has the power to kill us. And of course, what I'm talking about is our anger. When we think about anger, we don't think it's that big of a deal. It's just kind of something that you know we kind of all have and we all kind of deal with. And that's like the tiger. It's the dangerous thing about it is the fact that we don't think it's that dangerous. When we think about bad things that people have or experience or character traits, you know, bad things that people do, we think of stealing, murdering. Uh, lying, cheating, whatever. Anger is kind of like not that big of a deal to us. And yet, we're all just feeding this 400-pound tiger that has the power to kill us. So if we are going to call in the sharpshooter that's going to repel into our lives and tranquilize and take out the anger, see how I'm working this metaphor, um, then I think that we need to understand three things from these passages that I've laid out in front of you. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at three different things. The features of anger the roots of anger, and then the healing of anger. All three things right here in these passages. What are the features of it? What are the roots of it? And then how do we heal it? So first, let's look at the features of anger. And there's lots of different things that I could say here. There's lots of different features. Let me give you three quick ones. Three quick features. The first feature is this, is that anger is destructive. Here's a couple of Proverbs. Proverbs 15, 18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. And then look at 29-22. A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger uh, and one given to anger causes much transgression. And so over and over and over it's saying this. People that feel angry, given to anger, it stirs up strife, which is another way of saying it destroys relationships. Because when you get angry, you start throwing words around like weapons. And those words that you're slinging around start hurting and injuring people. And sometimes uh, you can say things and damage a relationship so deeply that it's almost beyond chance of being repaired. That you can do things and say things in the heat of your anger where it really does rip the relationship in two. It It is a destructive force that we all feel. So that's the first feature, it's destructive. Here's the second feature. It's pervasive. One more proverb. Proverbs 16.32. 
Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. This is saying it's easier for you to take over a city than it is for you to deal with your own anger. The Bible is saying it's easier for you to form and, and organize a military takeover of the city of Knoxville than it is for you to get a handle on your own anger. Why? Uh, it's because your anger is so deep and it's so pervasive. It just runs through you. And you have not begun to deal with your anger problem yet unless you feel overwhelmed by it because it's just, you see it everywhere in your life. So think about what we get angry about for just a second. Uh, we get, everyone in here gets angry at construction in Knoxville, right? I mean, if you get in your car and you get on the strip, prepare yourself because you're going to yell at something in like four seconds. That's just, we're, we're all angry at the construction, we're all angry at traffic, uh, we're angry at our computers when they're slow, when our phones don't work right, we get, you know, the YouTube starts buffering, you just want to like throw something. Uh, we are, uh, let's talk about intramural games. Anyone ever gotten angry in an intramural game? Uh, yeah, we all do. We're angry at the refs, we're angry at the other team, we're angry at our team. Um, most of you, I would say, don't get hungry. You get hangry. Am I right? I get hangry. Turn into a monster. Um, uh, we've all br- blown up at our parents before. Ugh, so annoying. Can't stand them. Uh, we're all angry at our friends. They've all hurt our feelings. They've all betrayed us. They've all let us down in some way. We're all angry at them. Uh, we're all angry at our boyfriend or, if our girl, or our girlfriend because they're not Jesus for us. They're not perfect. They're not perfectly satisfying us in every way we want them to be. Uh, some of us are angry at Trump and anyone crazy enough to support Trump. And some of us are angry at Hillary and anyone crazy enough to support Hillary. We're angry at everybody politically. Uh, and if you have roommates, you're angry with your roommates. Like, I know because I sit down and talk with you, everyone in this room is angry at everyone that you live with. Like, you need to ask yourself this question. Ask yourself this question. Do I live with people? They're angry at you. If the answer is yes, they're angry at you, you should probably talk afterward. Like, our anger, it just runs so deep. We're angry at everything. And you may not be the kind of person that has, like, dynamite, explosive anger. Maybe you have crockpot anger that's just seething... Simmering beneath the surface, where you're too embarrassed to let people see how angry you are, but it's just in there, bubbling like a stew underneath the surface. We're all angry at everything, and it's pervasive in all of us. So it's destructive, it's pervasive, and then the third feature is this it's insane. And here's what I mean. Look at Proverbs 14, 29. This is the one we read a second ago. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. So saying someone who has a quick temper exalts folly. That means that uh, it's foolish. It's out of touch with reality. Charles Spurgeon, a great uh, 19th century Baptist preacher, said this, that uh, anger is temporary insanity. And here's why. I think it's because our anger shows us what we really believe about the world. And what we really believe about the world is that everyone that exists is there to serve me. Is there to serve us. 
Everyone else exists because the world revolves around me. And that's really crazy. Like, why else would I get angry when I'm at the grocery store and there's two lines to choose from as I'm checking out? And I choose this line, but inevitably that line that I could have chosen is going quicker than the line that I'm in. Why else would I get angry unless I really believed all of y'all in the store exist to serve me and to get me out of here as soon as possible? And y'all aren't doing what I want y'all to do. It's, I mean, it's like ridiculous that we think this way, or maybe that I just think this way. Uh, there was one time, I remember a number of years ago, I was in the car on my way to church of all places, and uh, we were running late, and I was behind this car that was going really slowly, and I was on a one-lane road, and I, I couldn't get around him. And so we pull up to a stop sign, and I know that I'm going right, and I can kind of get around him because he's going to go on, but he goes right. Ugh, can't get around him. So we're still going on this now this next stretch of road, and we're coming up to a stop light this time, and I know, okay, I'm about to go left, and he goes left, and I'm like, because it's now it's like irritating me. We get to the, the next stop sign, and I, this literally was my thought process. I'm not going to turn on my turn signal because he's looking in his rearview mirror, and he's intentionally sabotaging my attempt to get to church. And it's just, it's insane. I mean, I like, it's like my thought process that this person is existing in this random, you know, like, conspiracy to slow me down. It's nuts. By the way, he was going to the same church I was going to, and it got mad awkward when we got there, because I was, like, doing this the whole time in the back seat. (laughs) But if you think about our anger, it's crazy. It's out of touch with reality. You study for a test, you get the grade that you earned, and then you rage at the professor for giving you that grade that you earned. Uh, Your parents tell you, don't do this thing, If you do it, you will be punished. You do that thing, and then you're punished. And you rage against your parents for that. Or you're speeding, and a police officer pulls you over for speeding and gives you a ticket, and you rage against the the police officer, right? Our anger is crazy. But the roots of our anger, I think, actually go a lot deeper. The roots of our anger go so much deeper because, you know, the features of it, it's destructive, it's pervasive, and it's insane. But the roots of it, I think, are a lot more interesting. So let's talk about that next. And I want to throw just a couple of different proverbs at you. And I want to highlight a phrase that shows up in all of these things. And so I'm going to try to read it in such a way that it'll stand out to you. Proverbs 16.32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Let's look at 15:18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Look at Proverbs 19:11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. So, all throughout the book of Proverbs, and you could have seen, I could have included even more. You hear this phrase over and over, slow to anger. The Bible is saying, be slow to anger. Which is interesting that the Bible doesn't say you should never get angry. It doesn't say that. It says you should be angry. Sometimes. But the way that you should get angry is that you should be slow to anger. Now here's the question. Um, 
Well, actually, let me just show you. I just wanted to prove it to you. Look at Ephesians 4, 6. The Bible commands you to be angry. Ephesians 4, 6. Be angry and do not sin. That's a command in the Bible. Now, why would that be a command in the Bible for you to sometimes be slow to anger? Because didn't I just spend all of point one talking about how destructive and pervasive and horrible it was? Why would the Bible command you that it's okay for you to sometimes be slow to be angry? And here's why. Because that's how God is. When Moses meets God on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, here's how God chooses to reveal himself to Moses. If you look at verse 6, you can look this up later, Exodus 34, verse 6. God says this. He says, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The Bible says over and over and over, God is a God of anger, but he's slow to anger. He's not a God of no anger. He's slow to anger. And I think a lot of people get confused at this point because it's like, oh, God, God being angry, that feels so primitive and old school and fundamentalistic. And I want to believe in a God of love. God of anger seems too kind of outdated and weird to me. I want to believe in a God of love. But let me say this. If you love something and something comes in and threatens the thing that you love, if you don't respond with anger, you don't love that thing. If something can threaten the very thing that you love and you respond with indifference, then you don't care about that thing. Let me give you an example that happened a couple weeks ago. I was at the mall with my kids, letting them play in the little playground there. You know, all these little kids. I've got a three-year-old and a five-year-old, just like kids everywhere. And I'm just kind of sitting there, and I'm watching my son read, who's the three-year-old little boy. And this little kid comes up to him, probably about his same age, comes up to him and just pushes him. And Reed kind of stumbles back and goes, no pushing. (laughs) And the kid kind of steps up and pushes him again. And Reed falls on the ground and just like turns into this puddle of tears and like runs over to me. And I'm holding him and I'm trying to tell him it's okay. And this little boy kind of turns and he's just kind of watching me hold Reed. And I look at him and I say, let's not push each other, okay? That's not nice. Let's play nicely together, okay? We're not going to push each other anymore. And Reed is a little bit reluctant to go back out and play, and little kids just kind of looking at me. And so I, you know, Reed kind of comes down. And I put him down and let them go in and play. And this kid comes over to Reed, pushes him again, and the mama bear instinct <laughs> clicks on, and my teeth clench, and my eyes get big, and I make eye contact with that twerp, <laughs> and I look at him and say, "Hey, do not do that." Now, his mom was right there. And I was very overt with my communication to this kid because I wanted him to know, if you touch my child again, I will crush you. (laughs) And the mom saw this and kind of awkwardly came over. It's like, now, now, Billy. And like tried to to get him to apologize to Reed. And he wouldn't because he's a turd of a human. My point is, my point is, is um, that to love something, when that thing gets threatened, when that thing gets uh, uh, attacked, 
If you don't respond with anger at whatever is coming at it, then you don't love that thing. If something's attacking what you love and you can respond with numbness and indifference, then you don't love that thing. And the Bible is saying over and over and over that God is a God of absolute love and yet he's a God of absolute anger. Because he is so angry at the cancer of sin that is threatening the creation that he loves. So if you read the Bible, you see that God's angry with things like injustice. He's angry uh, when there are people in power that take advantage of and exploit people without power. He's angry at poverty. Jesus, who was the perfect person, you see him angry. He's angry at death. In John chapter 11. He's angry at the money changers in the temple. In Matthew chapter 21. He's angry at the religious leaders. In Mark chapter 3. The opposite of love is not anger. It's indifference. And the Bible says over and over. God is angry at that which threatens the goodness of the thing which he loves. And so here is kind of the devastating question that if you take this and apply it to us, here's, what's, here's the devastating question you have to answer. What is it, when you get angry, what does that show you that you love? If you were to dig underneath the roots of your anger and ask yourself the question, what am I trying to defend here? What am I protecting with this destructive force that's coming out of me? If you, ask, if you are honest enough to let yourself answer that question, I think you'll be embarrassed by what it is that you're defending, by what it is that you most deeply love. So let's take pickup basketball or intramural game, intramural football, whatever. You're playing, and the, somebody from the other team starts talking trash. And because your ego is so fragile that you feel like you've got to defend yourself, so you've got to bow up, you've got to start talking back, you've got to ask yourself, what do I love in this moment? Uh, the thing that feels threatened is my fragile little ego or my reputation. And I've got to defend it because the thing that I most love is me. Or um, you get angry when good things happen to your friend. They get a better grade than you. They come from more money than you. They have a boyfriend and you don't. Or they have a girlfriend and you don't. And you're bitter and you're jealous and you're angry. Because deep down what you love is this idea that I'm better than you. I deserve more than you. And you're getting ahead in life more than me. And it threatens that idea that you're better. And we get angry at traffic uh, because we love our schedule and our time and our sense of control. We want to be able to get in whatever lane we want, whenever we want. We want all the freedom. When people block us, it makes us angry. You, I don't know, maybe you're even angry with me tonight because I'm threatening your need to think of yourself as a good and calm person. And I'm trying to tell you you're not. The roots of our anger, it's love. The problem with our anger, the reason why it's so crazy and irrational and petty and shallow is because uh, we don't love what God loves. We're we're angry when uh, YouTube buffers, and yet there's thousands of people that are dying of loneliness on this campus, and we don't give a rip about it. We're angry because someone flirts with someone that we like, and we're angry about it. And there's like, we're, we're just totally numb to like horrific poverty that's like just a couple blocks away. 
Like our anger is totally out of whack because we don't love what God loves. We just love us. And that's why what we get angry about is so petty and insane and narcissistic. So what do we do then? What do we do with our anger? Well, here's how I want to set up this last thing. I don't know. Maybe you've seen the show The Office. Maybe you haven't. I don't know. Maybe you have. And um, there's a character on the show named Andy. And one night, Andy takes his computer and he records himself singing all four parts a cappella to the song Rockin' Robin. Rockin' Robin, tweet, So he, he takes that recording and makes it the ringtone on his phone. And he brings it to the office the next day and he calls it and kind of shows it off to people of him singing all these parts. And Jim, his coworker, of course, gets really annoyed by this and so takes his phone when he wasn't looking and then hides it in the ceiling right above his desk and then proceeds to keep calling it over and over and over so that Andy can't find where his phone is, but the sound is coming from everywhere. And at first, Andy goes, uh, what does he say? Tuna can't find my cellular device. And he's looking for it, keeps playing. As the day goes on, it keeps happening. He's getting more and more frustrated. It keeps coming. He's, and finally, he gets escalated, gets so angry that he just screams and turns and punches the drywall. And Jim, who was on the phone, making the phone call to make the thing go off, eyes get big, and he hangs up the phone. <laughs> And um, at the end of that episode, as Andy is driving away from the office, there's this little monologue where the camera's filming him, and here's what he says. He's talking about Michael, his boss. He says, so Michael had a little chat with corporate, and they decided to send me to manager training. Anger management, technically, but still management material. And remember, he comes back like five weeks later, and he makes everybody call him Drew instead of Andy. He's got a new way of dealing with his anger. But you know, you, you, you see that, and you're like, oh, that's great. That's great for Andy, for him to deal with his anger. But like, what do we do with our anger? Because we can't like take five weeks off and just go to like anger management training. And uh, like, what, so what do we do? And, and I want to talk about this last thing. The, how do we heal? How do we get healing for our anger? So here's the last idea. How do we get healing for our anger? And there's two things that I want to show you. Two steps, two keys to dealing with our anger. The first thing that you have to do is confess it. Most of the time when we get angry, we respond in one of two ways. One way is that we just suppress it, we bury it, we repackage it with a different name. So we say things like, I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated. We just think that word is a little softer. So we just take our anger and repackage it and then lie to people. So we suppress it. And another way that we do it, or is that when we feel anger, we just express it. We vent. We scream. We punch. We kick. We slam things. You know, I don't know. uh, John Lennon, famous Beatle, after the Beatles broke up, the first album that he put out as a solo artist was called Plastic Ono Band. In 1970, it's an amazing album. But at the time, he was really into this form of psychotherapy called primal scream therapy. You can look this up. It's really interesting. It was this uh, idea that they had back in the day that you could dig into the painful experiences of your past. And if you just express them with unrestrained screaming and violence, get it out. And so the, the first song on that album is called Mother. And it's him singing about how his mother left him when he was a child. And the, the last like, minute of the song is him just screaming 
into the microphone. It's like so visceral and intense and hard to listen to. But people don't really practice primal scream therapy anymore because they realize the more you express your anger, it doesn't get rid of it. It just fuels it. It strengthens it. Wisdom, then, if you want healing for your anger, it is not to suppress your anger, and it's not to express your anger. It's to confess your anger, to admit it, to not minimize it and repackage it with a different word, but to admit and to own the fact that you have an anger problem, that you think that the world revolves around you and you're angry that it doesn't work that way all the time. That your anger is driven and fueled by narcissism and self-love. You will not heal your anger unless you're willing to name it and put a label on it. You've got to name it. You've got to confess it. That's the first key. And the second key to healing your anger is that you have to melt it. You have to melt it. And here's what I mean by that. Look at Proverbs 15.1. It says this. A soft answer turns away wrath... But a harsh word stirs up anger. It's interesting. It's an interesting little proverb because it kind of paints a little, a little tiny scene, a little vignette for you. It's like, what do you do when somebody is just raging against you? Uh, and so I, I try to think of, let's put it in terms of like a roommate scenario. Let's say you've been a bad roommate, which apparently most of you have. And let's say that you don't clean your room very well. You keep your crap all out in the living room area. You drink other people's milk. And you're always kind of late on, like, paying your bills. And your roommate has been bottling it up for a long time. But something happened, and they just, the, the, it was the straw that broke the camel's back, and they just go bananas on you. And they're just going off on you. Now, you have a couple of choices on how you're going to respond to somebody raging at you. You can defensively rage back. Here's why I did all of that, and here's everything that you've done that's made me upset. And Proverbs says, look at it, a harsh word stirs up anger. How do you think that conversation is going to go if that's how you choose to respond? You just invited a nuclear meltdown in the living room, right? So you can respond with anger, or you can respond by just withdrawing, just cutting it off, just shutting down, just saying, peace out, I'm done, and walking away. And what that does is it cuts off any hope or any chance of there being any resolution. The only way for you to respond to someone with that much anger, according to Proverbs, is to respond with a soft answer. It says a soft answer turns away wrath. That means a gentle word, which means that you have to, in that moment, just take absorb all of the anger that they're throwing at you, you refuse to retaliate, and then you engage them with gentleness and with truth and with patience and with love. And that's your only hope for turning away their wrath, for resolving that conflict. A gentle answer turns away wrath. So here's the question then. How does, how does God respond to our rage against him? Because if you think about it, all of our anger in this world is in a fundamental, ultimate way directed at him. We're not angry at the people in the cars. They're just on their way to work. We're angry that God put them there. We're angry that God put this situation in my life or this circumstance in my life. Why are you doing this? And so all of our rage, all of our anger is fundamentally directed at him because we're so committed to thinking we're at the center of the universe. How does God respond to our rage against him? Does he respond with rage back? Does he call in these drone strikes from heaven to just take us out? 
Does he withdraw? Does he just kind of peace out and cut off communication? No. He comes in close with gentleness and tenderness. In the person of Jesus, he comes, and then he absorbs all of our wrath against him at the cross. There he is, and we're mocking him, and we're spitting in his face, and we're punching him, and we're beating him, and we're nailing him because we're so angry at him. He just takes it, refuses to retaliate. And then he engages us with tenderness and with love and with gentleness. It says a soft answer turns away wrath. Think about how gentle he was from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. When you are on the receiving end of experiencing how he responds to your rage, that alone is what begins to melt your anger. When you see that he did not respond to your anger with more anger, but he responded with gentleness, with patience, with tenderness, with love, and with grace, that alone is what has the power to begin to diffuse and erode and melt away your anger for him. And you know, when that actually happens in you, when you experience that level of love and tenderness, then when other people wrong you, now you have the spiritual resources to respond to them with patience and tenderness and love and truth. Here's the last story I'll tell you, and I'll kind of end with this. There was a story that I heard a number of years ago about this renowned atheist named Patrick Green uh, who lived in... Uh, outside of San Antonio, kind of central western Texas. And every year, he sued the city of San Antonio because they would always put up a nativity scene kind of in their public square. And he was an atheist and was so angry at that and hated that because it just seemed like such a uh, horrible uh, public display of religion in a, a, you know, church-state sort of bad-no-no sort of way. So he hated this. He felt like it it, it violated his First Amendment rights. So every year he sued the city of San Antonio, lost every year. And there was this uh, journalist that came to him this next year and said, okay, well, they're about to put up the nativity scene again. Are you going to do your little annual lawsuit that you do? And uh, he says, no, can't do it this year because I have a detached retina and I can't drive the 300 miles to San Antonio to kind of file my lawsuit. So I can't do it. And uh, the article gets published, and there's this woman in that area named Jessica Cry who reads this article and thinks to herself, here's this man who's hurt, and he can't help, you know, he can't really take care of himself. We should do something about this. So she takes this article to her pastor, and he reads it, and he calls up the atheist guy, Patrick Green, and he says, hey, I'm pastor so-and-so of whatever church. How can we help you? And Patrick Green says something like, I don't, I don't need your help. I don't want your help. I, uh, I've got a detached retina. It's a $20,000 uh, medical expense. I can't even pay my rent. And so they talk and they hang up, and three days later, a uh, check for $400 shows up in the mail to pay his rent. And then groceries start coming. And over the next few months, more and more money and supplies is being sent to this atheist. And so they do this kind of follow-up story once kind of all this develops. And the journalist kind of re-interviews him and says, like, what's your experience been like with this church that you don't know just kind of showering you with love? And he says, here's what he says, quote, I want to write a book about this whole incident. And I want to call it, quote, the real Christians of Henderson County. And then he goes on and he says, 
these people are acting like what the Bible says a Christian should act like. What happened to his anger? It melted. It melted away because he was on the receiving end of love. Now the Christians, they could have lawyered up. They could have defended their First Amendment rights too. This is our place too. We can put a nativity scene here if we want to. They could have won an argument maybe, but winning arguments does not win hearts. Winning lawsuits does not win people's hearts. Your roommate situations, winning an argument, devastating somebody with your impeccable logic might feel good, but you'll lose the person. Winning arguments feels good, but it doesn't win people. So what do you do with your the tiger inside of you that we're all just feeding? How do you heal your anger? Two things. You confess it. You name it. This is sin. It is rage against God, and it's fueled by narcissism and self-love. You name it. And then you take that, and you place it before the white-hot love of God and watch it melt before his grace. That's how it gets healed. And that's the invitation for you tonight. Let me pray. Father, we do confess that we're angry. We think we're at the center of the universe and we're angry when things don't go the way that we think they should go. And we're not angry at what you're angry about. And so we confess we've got a big problem and this thing runs deep in us. And so I pray, Father, that you would give us the courage, give us the strength, give us the faith to confess what is really going on in our hearts. And Father, I pray then that you would give us the freedom and the grace to take it before you and allow ourselves to drink and to experience how much you love and are gentle with and gracious with rageaholic, crazy, insane, narcissistic fools like me and like us. And I pray that that would change us as we experience your love in a deeper way. Heal us from the inside out, we pray and we beg. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.